Tonight, I just wanted to focus on this little section here that we have in 2 Timothy um, chapter 2, where Paul, uh, in the broader context, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is, um, if you like, his apprentice, the young worker, clearly a, a close confidant of Paul's. Um, Paul has charged him, uh, along with Titus, in um, effectively to sort of continue the work of um, establishing, strengthening and broadening the church that um, Paul has done through his three missionary journeys in um, projecting the gospel into the Gentile world as uh, he was charged with doing. And in order to make sure that work continues and continues in a truthful way, continues in um, the pure way, avoids the dissensions and the factions and the wanderings that had already started, um, Timothy is really being um, taught and encouraged and, and warned um, by um, Paul. Uh, and the two lessons, or rather the two letters that we have, First and Second Timothy, are just um, tremendous you know, practical um, exhortations, encouragements, um, frameworks for how the church should be led and how individuals should be contributing to the work of the church. Um, I really never tire of reading First and Second Timothy because there's always... Um, this real sort of advice and then a, an exhortation to you know continue on to not worry about the other problems to to focus in on the things you can do all of these sorts of things and I think um, as a church and as the the body of Christ I think the thing that distinguishes the church is our desire to just continue to come back to what Christ has taught and what the apostles the message that they carried out and not trying to get involved in um, all of everything else that can often um, surround and confuse and, and pollute the gospel. And so in doing this, in trying to, uh, as he says here in verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, he says, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then he draws on these three examples, these three um, professions, if you like, occupations, roles in society, um, that of a soldier, that of an athlete, and that of uh, a farmer, or perhaps a husbandman, some versions have... Um, it's no surprise or it's um, not, these aren't drawn obscurely. These are three, if you like, almost iconic um, professions that I would argue uh, have been present in every community um, pretty much from time moving forwards. Um, wherever you see um, right throughout the Old Testament, all of the different nation states, all of the different ethnic groups, they all had armies, didn't they? They all had soldiers. They all had people wanting to either defend their border or to expand their borders by you know, pushing into other lands and conquering them. 
um, we see in the time of Christ. The Roman soldiers are very prominent throughout um, the locale that Christ is and then we see um, Paul and other apostles encountering soldiers. You come right through the Middle Ages, right through to contemporary times and the soldier is ever-present the army um, is ever-present. They have different armour, they have different weapons, um, but that same intention, that same purpose of either defence or attack in the name of the nation-state or uh, an individual ruler, something like that. Likewise, the athlete. Again, athletics, sport, um, the use of the body in terms of, of games and in terms of some sort of pursuit bounded by agreed rules, um, this is an ever-present. You know, the modern-day Olympics that will be celebrated later in the year in Tokyo began in 1896 in Athens. It very consciously drew back to the Olympic Games to the um, games that were in Greco-Roman times. We see Paul referencing um, the um, sports and um, athletes, you know, wrestlers, boxers, um, the discipline of physical exercise and endurance. We see him referencing that in, in other letters um, as well. You look again, you know, as kids, as soon as they're able to use their bodies in a coordinated way, they'll see a ball, they'll kick a ball. You know, kids can be very, very young. I'll race you to there and back. You know, this idea of sport is, is pretty much ingrained in us. And then, of course, the third example, that of the um, agricultural profession, the, um, the grower um, of food, of animals, um, crops, again... This is an ever-present in all societies, in all communities. It's only the last three to four hundred years that the balance has shifted at all towards um, urban living and non-agricultural pursuits. And it's really only been the last 20 years, I believe, that um, all the whole global population has gone past 50% in terms of non-agricultural um, subsistence. Um, so, and again, we know that Christ drew on agricultural examples. Um, we see right throughout the Old Testament the dominance of and the you know, necessary nature of um, food production and how central that is to community living. So Paul here is drawing on you know, examples that are, are the forefront of people's mind. They don't need unpacking. They're ever-present. They're very you know, visible, very well-known. And he's drawing on these to liken the work that Timothy has to do, to liken the work that workers for Christ have to do. And so there's just um, three elements that I want to draw out um, that really each of these um, are involved in. And in one way or another, the text here reminds us of. He says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. 
So we see here the idea of discipline, the idea of endurance, the idea of focus. They're not the whole three, that's sort of one, one point. Um, and again, we know this is necessary for a soldier. If a soldier's job is to defend a particular garrison and they become distracted, they go wandering off, they're interested in other things, um, that's when the enemy strikes, doesn't it? We know that um, soldiers are always having to train, having to prepare, having to, you know, they're not always engaged in warfare. Uh, the vast majority, I suspect, of a soldier's life, um, probably in contemporary times, but perhaps even right throughout, is actually um, preparation, you know, preparing their physical bodies to be ready, preparing um, their tactical programs, preparing their armaments, preparing logistics and knowing how to be able to, to manage when and if conflict does arise. Likewise, an athlete, an athlete who is actually going to be um, productive and you know, prepared to compete and not just you know, have a bit of a run around, um, that athlete needs to be disciplined in their preparation. They need to be focused. And if you listen to um, say Olympic athletes, even in athletes in the more common professional sports, they talk about <coughs> the single-minded focus that they have, oftentimes to the exclusion of or to the cost of um, their family, uh, oftentimes to the cost of their um, maturation. And so you know, we see footballers having problems with you know, relationships with um, you know, women and, and these sorts of things, oftentimes they're very um, immature because all they've known is what to train and what to focus on. They haven't been taught you know, social skills and it's not to excuse those things, but it's just a reflection of a single-minded focus that is often part um, of an athlete's life. Um, athletes after they finish an Olympic Games cycle, they'll often talk about actually falling into a depression or, you know, not having that same discipline in terms of eating one cube of chocolate, you know, a week and that was all they allowed themselves, all these type of things. And again, the farmer as well. The farmer needs discipline, doesn't it? The farmer needs focus. The farmer needs endurance. Um, if you aren't getting up at four in the morning to milk the cows, if you aren't um, preparing the soil at the right time, if you're not harvesting at the right time, again, I'm actually none of these three things. I would be a terrible soldier. Um, I'm not a very good athlete at all, and I probably know next to nothing about agriculture. So everything I'm sharing is pretty common knowledge, I would hope, and I'm sure Bob and Michael and others can pull me up on particularly the agricultural side of things. But surely you know, a crop goes to waste if the farmer isn't disciplined to go and to um, harvest it you know, when it's ready. Um, the farming life, surely, to anybody who observes it, seems to be a hard life. It seems to be a life of discipline. It isn't a nine to five, Monday to Friday, get every fourth Friday off kind of a job. You have to work when the cattle are ready to work. You have to, um, you know, put in the time. Um, 
you know, it's a, a seasonal thing. You need to bring in the crop when the good years are come because there will be years you know, when it's not so good. All of these things translate directly to the Christian life. Paul's saying. The Christian needs to be one who's willing to endure, one who's willing to discipline oneself. Um, remember Paul says, you know, I buffet my body daily. I'm prepared. I'm preparing for the battle against Christ, the battle against temptation, the battle against giving up, the battle against myself and all of its, you know, lusts and all of its weaknesses and these things. And just as you know, the athlete who disciplines oneself is then you know, giving themselves the best opportunity to compete, the soldier with discipline makes sure that they're all um, you know, working um, as a cohesive unit and not as a rabble that's easily overrun. Um, likewise, we as individual Christians and we as a, a collective unit um, need this similar discipline, need this focus. He says there that we're not to entangle ourselves with the affairs of this life. It's a really great phrase, a really great concept. You know, soldiers are, are kept kind of on barracks and um, the whole idea is to build up, you know, um, that um, connectivity and that sense there. The, the sporting team likewise, they don't just turn up on the Saturday afternoon and play. You know, they train throughout the week to try and work um, together these sorts of things and so the idea there is that you know, if we are distracted by pursuing you know, wealth or um, immoderate um, you know, activities and desires and all of these sorts of things um, then we get straying away from the discipline and the focus on um, righteousness on spreading the gospel on being good examples on strengthening the church on allowing each other to not lose focus and to um, be encouraged. Again, none of this is, is rocket science. All of this is straightforward. But I think it's really useful to, to draw out these examples and to remind ourselves, just as Paul was reminding Timothy. You know, he's not scolding Timothy here. He's not saying, you know, you've, you're not being focused. He's just saying, this is going to be hard. There's going to be people coming at you from all different angles. People who um, are trying to twist the truth. People who are just, you know, causing fractious things. Um, there's going to be issues that arise. And so you know, I want you to be focused on the right things and I want you to be prepared to endure through these things and not be disheartened as one who is you know, central to um, the growth of, of the church. He goes on and then he refers to the soldier, uh, rather to the athlete, and he says if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So here we have the idea of obedience the idea of making sure that we submit ourselves to um, the rules that are there. Sport doesn't really exist without rules. Sport's kind of useless. Like if we both 
know, if we say, well, we're just going to kick a ball to each other, it's kind of uh, you know um, enjoyable thing, but it's not competition. It's not victory. You don't give the crown to the person who can sort of kick the most or whatever. All you know, organised sport that we recognise draws a line around the field, has a goal, has a basket, has a distance between here and there that we these days measure to the thousandth millimetre or whatever else it might be. And so um, athletes have to submit to those rules. And of course you see athletes pushing those rules. When they break those rules, you have an umpire, you have a referee, that referee says foul, blows the whistle. And what do you see athletes always doing? They're never wrong, are they? They're always going up to the referee, they're always saying, oh, that wasn't right. I've watched a lot of sport in my life, um, I can assure you, both live and um, mostly on television. In all of the time that I have watched sport, in all of the time that I've seen athletes square up to referees, abuse referees, um, be absolutely utterly convinced that they're in the right and the referee's wrong, I've never once seen a referee say, oh no, you're right, let's change the agreement. We now have the you know, video camera referee and the third party in this kind of futile pursuit at perfection. And all that happens now is that people blame the video referee and the video referee you know, gets it a little bit closer but there's still um, arguments about did he touch it with his hand or not? Did he mean to touch it or not? Was his nose hair in front of the other guy and did that really make it offside or not? All of these sorts of rules. But the point is that um, it's not the athletes who set the rules, the athletes obey the rules. And as much as they arc up, as much as they complain, um, it's the athlete ultimately that must obey the rules. Likewise, we see this in military settings, in soldier settings. There are rules of warfare, rules of engagement. Um, again, oftentimes in wartime, these things are pushed and, and, and broken. Um, but without those rules of engagement, all you have is savagery. All you have is um, untamed violence. And individual soldiers and individual units, um, those that are disciplined, those that um, adhere to um, the rules that are, are set, you know, and you are familiar, no doubt, from film and these sorts of things about the, you know, the training academies they have and how rigorous they are and how, um, you know, the boots have to be shined and the, um, you know, the bed has to be folded to certain corners. And all of this is to um, create a, a sense of submission and a sense of going back to discipline so that when you're in the foxhole and when the bullets are flying, um, that you don't go off and do your own thing and endanger the rest of the group, endanger the helicopter that has to come and rescue people, all of these sorts of things. Likewise, again, in agriculture, in agriculture there's natural laws, there's natural rules. And again, I don't want to speak out of turn, but if you plant seeds at the wrong time, you can't really expect to get a harvest. Um, you know, over time, people have learnt that this particular crop grows well in this soil with this moisture and um, you know, this time of year that it's planted, these sorts of things. Um, 
when we try and go against those rules, we can sort of break them for a little bit, can't we? We can, you know, pour fertilizer in and we can sort of try to manufacture the right arrangements. But I suspect that the vast majority of farming that is successful is farming that respects the land and respects the environment. And we've seen where we've tried to go through and to try and and change those rules and disobey those natural laws um, that you end up with erosion, you end up with um, you know salination of the soil. I still marvel down in South Australia there was a spot on our travels that we stopped at and um, there was a description, uh, I think it was down in the Eyre Peninsula, where um, the early settlers had gone through and sort of cleared the land and, I guess, grown sheep and cattle and some things. But, of course, the water table grew up because they cleared all of the plants that, um, you know, were suitable for that land. And so and the water table rose, salination, you know, nothing would grow there. And so now, some 220 years later, they're going back and they're, well, you know, 1860s or whenever it was that um, they sort of came through and settled in South Australia, they're going through and they're having to replant the plants that were all torn up back in the late 1800s in order to um, get some, you know, life and fertility back into the soil. Um, you think of like the Amazon and the rainforests of South America. People go through and, oh, you know, look at this lush rainforest. The soil must be great. And it's actually the ecosystem that's sustaining that. And when they go through and, and clear away the forest and then try and grow soy plants and these other things, um, again, disobeying the laws that have sort of allowed things to grow there, um, that you need to spend a lot more on, on um, fertiliser, which is again can be you know get into water systems algae all sorts of these consequences that flow on the point being that you know obedience submission to a set of laws is something that isn't just exclusive to christians it's absolutely necessary in these other um, activities and so for christians we have laws um, and we have principles and we have attitudes and we can buck against them, we can ignore them, we can disobey them. But there's consequences to that. And you know, the old argument about how can a loving God allow this, that or the other, well, why do disobedient humans <laughs> indulge in all of these things? Maybe if we started there and worked our way back towards God, um, we would answer a lot more questions about the suffering in the world. Not all of it, for sure. But the point is is that obedience is a necessary part of the Christian life. And not obedience that's some sort of, you know, rote, um, fearful... Um, emptying out of ourselves, but rather an obedience that is born of love and born of a recognition that what God wants for us is best for us and that that obedience comes from a heart of submission and a desire to serve, a desire to do the right thing and an acknowledgement that God's ways are higher than our ways. Finally, in verse 6, he says, The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. 
And so um, the best understanding that I have um, rather um, of this, this verse that I've read is the idea not that the farmer should be, you know, before they sell everything, eat, you know, eat of their food, although that is there, but more so that the hard work must come first and then from the hard work the farmer is able to partake of a crop and doesn't go the other way around. And so we have endurance and discipline, we have obedience that is necessary, um, we also have um, hard work that is necessary, and we also have um, hard work in preparation, hard work in, in, in forethought um, that enables you know, the farmer to partake um, of their crop. Uh, and so, again... You know, we see this in athletes, we see this in soldiers. It's this hard work of preparation that they've put in um, that allows them to stand there at the blocks of the 100 metres um, and to have a chance of winning. Um, the best athletes in, in basketball, there's a great story. Um, Kobe Bryant, you know, um, passed away the last couple of weeks. So he was famed for his hard work. He was famed for his um, belligerence and he would actually get really angry with his, um, his own players, his own teammates and really try and push them to be better. And early on in his career he played a, a final series where he was pretty poor. He missed um, a lot of shots and um, when he came back from... Um, so yeah, he missed you know, a lot of shots, they, they lost the game, um, lost the series, and he flew back, back to Los Angeles from their loss, and he went from the airport straight to the gym. So he had, you know, they have an 82-game series plus finals. Normally, when you're finished, you have an off-season for two or three months that allows you to recover and, and all of that. When he flew back from this great loss, he went straight from the airport to the gym and from that night until 5 o'clock the following morning, he shot baskets. He was disciplining himself, he was teaching himself to learn from that loss, to prepare himself for next time that he was in that position, that he would have done everything possible, done all the work that he could to prepare himself. He subsequently won five championships, one of the probably you know, 10 best players that's ever played NBA basketball. Again, the point is, in our own Christian lives, that we need to be people who are prepared. The reason that we come together here to worship and, and to listen to lessons and to study is in part for preparation. In part, you know, we, we edify one another, we worship the Lord as we're instructed but in this teaching in this sharpening of one another we're preparing ourselves for as Ian spoke about this morning from Psalm 107 preparing ourselves for the difficult times preparing ourselves for when the church comes under attack preparing ourselves for when we are in chains when we are in dark places in our life preparing ourselves to make sure that we don't lose our faith, that we don't discourage other people in their journey of faith. The farmer lives a life of preparation. The athlete lives a life of preparation. They compete 
very rarely compared to the amount of time that they train. The soldier likewise is engaged in warfare much, much less than they are in preparation. So we as Christians, we as workers in the church, we as preachers, teachers, leaders, followers, we as people striving to do the right thing and the godly thing, we need to be people of endurance and discipline. We need to be people of obedience and submission. And we need to be people of hard work and preparation. Thanks very much.